Hello, and welcome to the January episode of the Lancet Neurology Podcast. My name is Nikolai Humphreys. This month is a special issue on stroke, which coincides with the American Stroke Association International Conference on Stroke in New Orleans in February. In a moment, Richard Lane interviews the author of a review published in this month's issue looking into the effects that various nutrients, foods, and dietary patterns have on the risk of stroke. But before that, I am joined by my colleague, Rachel Jones. Hi, Rachel. Hello, Nikolai. So, can I ask you, what else is going on in this month's stroke-themed issue? Well, we have three more reviews on stroke. In their review, Busset and colleagues look at the links between migraine and stroke. People who experience migraine with aura have a higher risk of ischemic stroke than those who do not. But the reasons for this are not clear. Although it is possible that primary migraine with aura itself somehow increases the risk of stroke, it could equally be true that both migraine and ischemic stroke are caused by a shared underlying mechanism. In another review, Elizabeth and Bushnell also discuss risk factors for stroke. They review the increased risk of stroke in women after the menopause and the influence of hormonal treatment on this risk. They look at the hormonal and pathophysiological factors that might contribute to this increased risk and highlight areas for future research in identifying and protecting those women who are at greatest risk. Finally, the most devastating type of stroke is intracerebral haemorrhage. Balami and Buchan describe the complications that can arise in patients who have had an intracerebral haemorrhage, such as elevated intracranial pressure, seizures and fever, and discuss strategies for identifying, preventing and managing these complications. As this is the first issue of the new year, we also bring you our annual roundup, a series of short articles specially commissioned to highlight the most important advances of 2011 in the various subspecialties of neurology. Also in this issue, we have a genetic study that identifies a repeat expansion on chromosome 9 as a cause of frontotemporal lobar degeneration and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis spectrum disorders. Results from the TRAC-HD study that suggests potential outcome measures for therapeutic trials in Huntington's disease and a trial of different dosing regimens of interferon beta-1a in patients with a first demyelating event suggestive of multiple sclerosis. Thank you, Rachel, for that brief roundup of the January issue of The Lancet Neurology. Now over to Richard Lane for the main discussion on the potential links between nutrition and stroke risk. Professor Henke, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. You're the author of a review in the January 2012 issue of the journal, and this is looking at nutrition and risk of stroke. And there's an awful lot of material and epidemiological studies around about this, and you go into to, to some great detail in the review. But just to start off, can you just briefly explain or summarize how undernutrition or even overnutrition can actually affect risk of stroke? What have we known up until this point about that specific question? Well, thank you, Richard. Well, most of the evidence is observational and epidemiological in this context rather than the highest level of evidence from randomized trials. But the observational data suggests that poor nutrition in the first year of a woman's life leads to some deformity of her bony pelvis called a flat pelvis where there's a reduction in diameter from the lumbosacral spine to the symphysis pubis and so the pelvis is sort of flattened. When the woman grows up and she becomes pregnant as an adult, this deformity in her pelvis due to poor nutrition when she was a young girl impairs the ability of her to sustain growth of her placenta and therefore the fetus. And so the children of these women have a very small head circumference and a low birth weight as babies, and the placental weight is low. In turn, these factors appear to be associated with an increased risk of stroke 
in the offspring of the mother or those children. And we don't quite understand why that happens, but it may be that this poor nutrition during the mother's infancy and poor growth of her pelvis and also other evidence to suggest poor growth in utero and as a young child when children are in their first few years of um, age has also been associated with increase of stroke and it's postulated that that undernutrition may be linked to the development of hypertension and raised plasma fibrinogen concentrations in adulthood and have a permanent effect on vascular structure and function. And another hypothesis, poorly nourished younger children are more prone to infections through their life and therefore, as we know, atherosclerosis is an inflammatory disease and, it, and plaques may be triggered by, or plaque rupture might be triggered by infection within plaques or inflammation within plaques. It could be that infection and inflammation as a youngster and subsequently that's predisposed by poor nutrition could predispose, but we don't really know for sure. On the other hand, overnutrition has also been linked to an increased risk of stroke, and that's probably by accelerating the development of obesity, the metabolic syndrome, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes, the looming epidemic. Just zooming in a bit specifically, actually, within the area of nutrition, are there any specific foods, nutrition, or diets that can actually increase or decrease stroke risk? The most reliable evidence that we have for a causal relationship between nutrients, foods and diets and the risk of stroke actually comes from randomised trials where we can minimise bias or systematic bias and we can also minimise random error with large numbers. Unfortunately, there are no really convincing results from randomised trials for the, an increase or decreased risk of stroke, but there's actually reliable evidence for no effect on stroke risk for supplementation with the antioxidant vitamins beta-carotene, vitamin C and vitamin E. And there's also no effect on stroke risk of supplementation with B vitamins in high folate regions or supplementation with calcium. Indeed, the randomised trials of calcium supplementation suggest that it may actually increase the risk of stroke by about 20% and the evidence is stronger even for myocardial infarction where there's a statistically significant increase in the risk of myocardial infarction with calcium supplementation by about a third. So most of the data we have actually though are from observational studies which are less re reliable and they suggest that the risk of stroke is increased with the addition of salt in our diet for every five grams a day or a teaspoon of salt a day is associated not just with an increase in blood pressure but about a one-fifth to one-quarter increase in risk of stroke. Adding sugars to our diet that increase our glycemic index and glycemic load seem to be associated with increased risk of stroke. Whether that's directly through the sugars or the increase in calories is uncertain. There's some evidence that increased meat consumption perhaps through that its saturated fat content is associated with an increased risk of stroke. And there's quite a large body of evidence for particular diets, um, such as the Western diet, where there's a higher intake of red and processed meats, refined grains, sweets and desserts that seems to be associated with an increased risk of stroke. On the other hand, observational studies are plentiful for for factors that have been associated with a reduced risk of stroke, 
particularly there's a large body of evidence suggesting that potassium supplementation, which lowers blood pressure, reduces stroke risk. Vitamin D supplementation, which also lowers blood pressure, has been associated with a lower risk of stroke, but is being examined now in a randomised trial for a definite causal association. In low folate regions, like in Asia, there's observational data and some genetic epidemiological data published in the Lancet this year suggesting that folic acid supplementation could be associated with a reduced risk of stroke, although in folate replete areas where there's folate fortification, this doesn't seem to have an effect on stroke. Fruit and vegetable consumption and whole grain consumption has been associated with a reduced risk of stroke. And for all you chocolate and coffee lovers... Good news here, yes, I noticed. Yep, chocolate has been associated with about a 29% reduction in stroke and moderate consumption of coffee, and the authors called that two to four cups a day, was associated with about a 20% reduction in stroke. And similarly, moderate consumption of tea, three or more cups a day, has been associated with about a 20% reduction in stroke in observational studies. And then finally, dietary patterns, the Mediterranean diet and the DASH-style diet, which is the dietary approaches to systolic hypertension diet, have also been shown in several studies to be associated with a low risk of stroke. And as you know, the Mediterranean diet is characterized by a high consumption of fruit, vegetables, legumes, complex carbohydrates like whole grains, a moderate consumption of fish, consumption of olive oil as the main source of fats, that's monounsaturated fats, a low to moderate amount of red wine during meals, and a low consumption of red meat, refined grains and sweets. So that seems to be the totality of the evidence at the moment for stroke risk. Looking at stroke in adulthood, what could they do to, to reduce their, in terms of diet, reduce their, their, their risk of stroke? Or taking that further forward, if they've had a stroke, are there any measures they could take in terms of intervention to reduce the risk of them having a recurrent stroke in terms of diet and lifestyle? As I said, our evidence base is not that strong to make really strong recommendations. But from the data that we have in thousands of patients, but it's mainly observational and therefore open to confounding, um, the, I guess the key principles are firstly one should have a balanced diet and uh, by balanced one is to do with energy intake and, and energy intake should really not exceed expenditure. So we want to take in what we're using otherwise we're going to become obese and be prone to hypertension and metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Caloric intake is important. If we could lower our intake of salt we could definitely reduce our blood pressure and in theory, reduce our risk of stroke. If we could also not add sugars, and particularly refined sugars, to our diet, we could minimise our caloric intake and achieve an ideal body weight, ideally, and hopefully have better control of our vascular risk factors. And also, perhaps, having a diet that was low in meat, particularly processed meats that contain high levels of salt and other preservatives. We would probably want to maximise, if possible, our intake of potassium, fruit and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and vegetable oils, and then ensure moderation with our intake of omega-3 fatty acids, the plant-derived ones like alpha-linolenic acid, like vegetable oils such as soybean and canola and walnuts, the marine omega-3 fatty acids like fish. If we're going to drink milk, as we do, to use reduced fat milk as opposed to full strength, and then 
to maintain our intakes of vitamin D or exposure to sunlight if possible for vitamin T intake and folic acid. And as I said, perhaps a moderate intake of chocolate coffee and tea looks good in the observational data. But ultimately, probably to try and adopt something along the lines of the Mediterranean diet or DASH diet, ensure that we have a sufficient intake of plant foods, fruit and vegetables, fish, poultry, whole grains, low-fat dairy products and nuts, and while minimising the intake of red meat, salt, sweets and sugar-sweetened beverages. And that requires effective public health communication, government action, cooperation with the food industry, that sort of thing. You say in your paper you observe how the effect of public health campaigns have reduced the impact of particularly uh, tobacco and alcohol on stroke risk. That actually has, has been effective as a result of public health campaigning in the 1970s onwards. But although there's a lot of talk about healthy eating, the reality is it's, it's very difficult to change people's behaviour, isn't it? Well, it is. I suppose that's one of the challenges of the future is from governments at various levels to try and further continue our research to not only evaluate and understand the nature and magnitude of people's eating behaviours, but also the optimal dietary targets and the reasons we are failing to meet those targets and what underpins our behaviour or our resistance to change. Then, as you say, we need good interventions, which are firstly education to establish good communication strategies to improve public knowledge about food and behaviours relating to food, you know, to have media and education campaigns to encourage specific healthy foods at schools, to have dietary curriculums, training for teachers, availability of healthy food and drink and, and integrate this into school policies. In workplaces, we need healthier food options in cafeterias and vending machines, comprehensive wellness programs with a strong dietary focus. So there needs to be education as one intervention Another, as you said, was to engage with the food industry at a government level to set fair and progressive standards and targets for nutrient contents in processed foods and food labelling and marketing advertising. So to stimulate the reformulation of food products, we need government action and implementation of multiple progressive interventions to change behaviours, as you said, at all levels. That's not just understanding what motivates people to change through perhaps education and perhaps taxation, but I think in the short term, governments, we would hope, would prioritise dietary targets and population health targets rather than profit margin targets and policies across multiple stakeholders at the health and agricultural economic level. And I think for governments, legislation is very powerful through pricing policies to subsidise healthier foods and drinks and tax less healthy ones, to reformulate restrictions for salt and industrial trans fat contents of food. I mean, we've seen the banning of trans fats in uh, Denmark since 2003 and in Austria and Switzerland since 2009 and concurrently then Canada and the US and with great effect really, but we haven't really seen that in Eastern Europe or the Middle East or Southern Asia. And so there's opportunities there for legislation. And of course, mandatory product and food labelling. And finally, we need in the short term guidelines to govern marketing of foods and drinks to children. And in the long term, I hope 
the government can, should be aiming to work with the agricultural industry to promote infrastructure that's needed for the production and transport and marketing of healthier foods. So there's a lot to do. A final quick question, going back a step actually from what you've just said. In terms of our knowledge, and you've written the detail about many of the observational studies that are around, one perception I have as a non-expert is there's a lot of research around that isn't terribly conclusive or where question marks remain or where we have tentative ideas about possibility, maybe, nothing very, very clear. You mentioned at the end the importance of randomised trials and you and you mentioned that a little earlier in the podcast. What's about to happen in terms of the research agenda for really clarifying stroke risk associated with nutrition? Oh, thank you, Richard. That's why I actually did this review because every week... I sort of, for years, like you, we get bombarded with the news saying there's another risk factor for stroke or there's another risk factor for heart disease or cancer that's nutritional. You read the evidence and it's actually quite ropey and it's prone to systematic error or random error. Again, from usually observational studies, people have correlated intake or exposure to a certain nutrient or dietary pattern or food with the outcome of stroke and tried to adjust for all the factors that could also be associated with the intake and also with the outcome of stroke. And of course those strategies fail to adjust for unmeasured factors or unknown factors and we've been burnt by this with previous studies like of antioxidant vitamins and also with hormone replacement therapy where observational studies have suggested an effect but the level one evidence by means of randomised trials which minimise systematic error and minimise random error if they're large have proven the observational studies were incorrect. And so if we're really wanting to establish a causal relationship between exposure to a nutrient or a food and a dietary pattern and the outcome of stroke, we have to really conduct randomised controlled trials and they need to be adequately powered and they need to be in representative populations and to carefully describe the interventions. And that's difficult because we can really only answer one or two or three questions in a randomised trial. And even just thinking about fats, there's, it might not be the total fat content, but the subtype of fat that's far more important than the total fat content. And the same with carbohydrate intake. It might be a particular subtype of carbohydrate intake that is so important. And we need to use measures of outcome of stroke that are valid and also though capture the heterogeneity of stroke because strokes can be hemorrhagic or ischemic and then amongst the ischemic strokes they can be embolic from the heart or large artery thromboembolism or intracranial small artery disease. So we may have missed in our randomised trials in the past or our observational studies important associations between subtypes of dietary patterns and also subtypes of stroke. So there's a lot of work to do but I think the randomised trial is ultimately the gold standard and it will require a series of those over a long period of time to really try and firmly understand the role of dietary factors in the pathogenesis and risk of stroke. 
Indeed. Well, it's a fascinating topic and I feel like we could talk all day about it. I've really enjoyed it. It's a terrific read. But in, in the meantime, Professor Graham Hankey on the line from sunny Perth in Western Australia. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure. My thanks to all those who contributed to the podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Goodbye and tune in next month.